0: as Dylan says, life is an experiment uh, and the balance of rights, individual rights and public safety is a huge area of decision right now as we continue to weather this pandemic. Uh, there are Australian citizens, of course, who need special permissions to enter and now also to exit the country and it looks increasingly likely we'll need to present evidence of having had the COVID jab to travel across state borders and potentially to access some services as people call for more freedoms for the vaccinated. Uh, Elizabeth Hicks and Greg door have been investigating and writing articles that tease apart these competing rights. Elizabeth is a PhD candidate at the University of Melbourne's Melbourne um, Law School and Greg is an infectious disease physician and epidemiologist at Kirby Institute at the University of New South Wales and they both Join us uh, in uh, this morning, and it's re- yeah, great to have you there. Good morning. Thanks for having us. And I, I guess, hi, uh, it'd be Great to sort of start with the entry and exit into Australia for Australian citizens. Uh, people, I understand, until this month have been able to, to leave freely. Uh, of course, there's been caps on, on who can enter the country, but now leaving also requires special permission. What, what has changed there? I think Elizabeth might be the one to ask that.
2: Yep, so um, since March 2020, as listeners are aware, there's been an outward ban on travel. So Australian citizens, residents um, need a, need permission to leave the country and that's regulated through the Biosecurity Act. Until now, there have been exemptions for Australians who ordinarily live abroad, which means they've spent more time outside Australia than in during the past 12 to 24 months. That's now changed, so... Um, On the 11th of August, last Wednesday, that exemption has been removed. So people who do ordinarily live abroad, if they come back to Australia to visit family or for whatever reason, they will then require permission to leave the country again to return to their lives.
1: And so how might we understand that that change, Liz? I mean, is this to disincentivise people from returning to Australia in the first place and, and I guess therefore reducing the strain on hotel quarantine?
2: So I think that's probably what it's getting at. I've been following this for a few months and around the time, probably the last time that we spoke actually back in April or May, there were these concerns that were kind of coming out of National Cabinet, that there were concerns that there were people who were just coming to visit so that they weren't coming to stay and that maybe they were taking up quarantine places. Um, I'm not actually sure how much of a strain they really do Put on the quarantine system. So I think it's notable that when um, Home Affairs Minister Karen Andrews was asked last week, you know, how many people are actually in this group, how much of a strain are they placing on the system, she couldn't give that data. I'm not sure that the government has it. So I think it's partly about just disincentivising wherever they can, and part of it's also even though now the real threat is with um to the community is within our borders it's community transmission that is now established there is still this currency to playing tough on borders and you know well, we're stopping people coming in we're doing something so this kind of theater around protecting the community that's maybe what it's also about
0: and so i mean with regards to the balance there uh, have we got the balance right there with with personal freedom versus public safety do you think
2: No, I don't think we have. And I think this is something also, uh, so Greg and I, which is why he's here as well, um, we published something a couple of weeks ago in The Guardian. We're talking about even though we now have vaccination and vaccines do change the risk profile, they don't provide sterilising immunity, but they do change the risk profile where we've cut our caps, they've never been as low as they are now, but there's no kind of consideration of vaccination status within that. So we don't have a separate cap for people returning and people not the outward travel ban itself is quite extraordinary so new zealand our direct neighbors who've handled this better than we have they've never stopped people leaving even saudi arabia which has not completed its vaccination rollout allows people to leave if they're vaccinated
1: yeah, and, and I think, you know, it's, it's such an interesting thing to be discussing, particularly this week, um, given, um, you know, in Melbourne, there's, there's been some coverage of, of people kind of congregating outdoors, we had sort of a, a really nice weekend here, um, and some reporting around sort of, you know, indoor indoor parties and that sort of thing. And, and I think the response from the community um, often can be quite concerned and, and thinking that we might be plunged into kind of a, a further lockdown as a result of a few people maybe, you know, stretching the rules or or not abiding by the rules as much as they should. But I suppose from where you sit, Greg, do you imagine that there are ways that we could sort of allow for more freedom of movement and start to lessen some of these restrictions while not imposing kind of a a significant burden on on public health and and risking people's safety?
3: I think that the main sort of uh, freedom that we need to focus on initially is uh, freedom of international return. Um, And it's, It's interesting that when we're in a sort of zero COVID setting, I could sort of understand the limits in terms of international returnee caps and trying to keep the numbers of positive cases coming in. Certainly didn't agree with the India flight ban, and certainly didn't agree with the halving of the international returnee cap uh, more recently. And you know, it's it's been a real feature, I think, of our response that we have uh, tried to maintain these sort of uh, safe borders or closed borders relative to the public health sort of risk. Um, Now that was okay as I said when we had this prolonged periods of uh, limited or no cases in most jurisdictions. I think things have completely changed now. The fact that we've got established infection broadly in New South Wales, we've got an outbreak difficult to control in Victoria and a recent outbreak in Queensland um, tells us that we do need to look at things differently. We're not going to get back to no cases for a prolonged period of time, certainly not across Australia. So in that sort of context, when you've got several thousand new cases occurring in Sydney in recent weeks versus around about 50 or 60 cases, positive cases among people returning to Sydney from overseas, it just gives you that sort of insight into how sort of crazy it seems to be in terms of concern in relation to risk. So I I think the priority is still to bring more people home. Liz and I have been advocating strongly to allow people that are fully vaccinated to come back and into home quarantine, particularly when we've got tens of thousands of people being quarantined right now because of community potential exposure. Um, So that's still, I think for me, the major priority, um, bringing people home, reconnecting families and loved ones. if we then sort of think about restrictions internally, I think there are some things we can think about in terms of the fully vaccinated. Now, again, that's going to be different if you're in a zero COVID setting and you're trying to maintain that, I think, versus the situation in New South Wales. But uh, there's several things I think we can start to to think about uh, that would allow fully vaccinated to be able to move more freely and, An example is to be able to sort of visit loved ones, for example, in residential aged care or in hospital if everyone's fully vaccinated.
0: So, Greg, before we go Um, on to some of those other issues, just to return back to the the – the, the return, um, the Australian citizens, into, um, people coming into the country and this idea that uh, you gave some numbers there, a small number of people testing positive in hotel quarantine, returning to the country, but then hundreds of mi- sort of mystery cases, I guess, in New South Wales at the same time. So they're freely circulating in the community and yet we're controlling the caps coming in. Um, I mean, what are some of the other risks being balanced there do you think um, by authorities like the idea that maybe that's new strains coming in or do you think it's really that we've we've set the set the tone and set the the caps and we're not budging on that while we're dealing with the internal matters and we don't kind of want to mess with what we've put in place for the, the past long period of time
3: yeah I think as Liz sort of pointed out it really is you know, the theatre uh, of trying to keep your borders sort of safe and again if you think about the risk to the community of people that are fully vaccinated returning to home quarantine, um, it's absolutely negligible. I mean, they're fully vaccinated, they've had a negative test prior to departure, they'd be going into a quarantine system at home, they'd have testing during that quarantine system. Um, I mean, if in Sydney right now, we knew that all the people that had been exposed who are in home quarantine were fully vaccinated, we would be Pretty relaxed. But the problem is that we don't have high proportions of people fully vaccinated. So we've got a real concern about those people becoming positive, uh, then potentially becoming unwell and also potentially spreading the infection further. So it just seems um, a really stark contrast, I think, internal sort of control of transmission versus the negligible risks that there would be in terms of bringing more people in.
1: We're speaking with Greg Dorr, infectious disease physician and epidemiologist at the Kirby Institute at the University of New South Wales, and also Elizabeth Hicks, a PhD candidate at, at Melbourne Law School, and, um, and they've uh, both been sort of active in, in writing and co-authoring articles on this issue of, of balancing individual um, rights and uh, positive public health outcomes amid the pandemic. And uh, I mean, Liz, I'm interested in, in your perspective on, I suppose, The the nature of um, rules that have been put in place to, to control the spread of COVID-19, and we've seen sort of, um, you know, the, the tendency to go for sort of blanket lockdowns and blanket rules for, for whole states at times, and then um, more of a patchwork approach in New South Wales, um, and you know, particularly in Sydney. But now, of course, New South Wales is in full lockdown. What's your kind of read on on the rationale for that decision making? Because some might say that having kind of a one size fits all approach makes it easier for people to get what the restrictions are, even though, for instance, people in Regional communities with very low transmission, um, you know, you could argue shouldn't be shouldering the same burden as people in in metropolitan Melbourne. But is there a sense here maybe that simplicity kind of works best and we should just cop the the limitations on individual rights um, for as long as we need to?
2: So is that a one-size-fits-all approach internally, or are you talking about the kind of the international border
1: restrictions? I, I, I suppose I'm 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 thinking across the board really. In maybe there being a reluctance to kind of continually tweak things when there's been some suggestion that uh, you know people have found it difficult to abide by by certain rules at particular times. And I mean that doesn't apply to international borders, of course, because if people know they can come back, then then they would. But is there kind of a reluctance there to to further complicate our response to this. I'm just trying to get to the bottom, I suppose, of why there might yeah. be a reluctance to, to, you know, look into some of these, these measures and put them in place.
2: I think part of it is because of bureaucratic simplicity. Sometimes there are compelling. I can't really speak, and this is maybe uh, Greg's area, about whether there is a rationale for having, say, a blanket lockdown across a state or or regional areas where there isn't any transmission. But I, I can say that with international borders, which I've kind of thought about in a bit more detail, I don't think the one-size-fits-all approach is proportionate and it is really about bureaucratic simplicity. And and if you look at courts across the world that have considered some of these questions, they've really emphasised that you need to look at the restriction on rights at the level of the individual and the risk that that individual poses, even if it does create bureaucratic hurdles. So that's the justification that's kind of been raised in such as Germany, which is kind of the other jurisdiction I look at. Um, the argument that you do need to allow vaccinated people more freedom even if you haven't offered the vaccine to everyone yet even if it's kind of only the older cohorts and the vulnerable who've received that vaccine you need to take that into account because the one-size-fits-all approach doesn't really um, it's not really compatible with that kind of rights proportionality analysis so I do wonder sometimes if The way that we have managed this within Australia has really been committed because we don't have a rights, a really robust rights framework. And we don't have the kind of culture and public expectations that flow from having that framework. So it's kind of been permissible to have these very sweeping restrictions. So are,
0: are you sort of pointing out there, because we don't have a Bill of Rights in Australia, that these decisions, rather than focused on those individual rights of, of what a citizen um, should expect in, in a, from, from being a citizen, um, they're more sort of political bureaucratic decisions um, rather than those focused on the, individual's rights?
2: I think so. I mean, you do see courts will look at kind of the administrative necessity of doing some things. Um, But I do think that aspects of Australia's response have really come about because not only the lack of rights catalogue, but the kind of culture that we have in Australia as a whole. So this is something that Professor Sarah Joseph at Griffith has talked about a little bit. We don't have the culture of proportionality and the kind of expectations that the public have of government, we've been incredibly accepting of many of these measures, even when some of them, particularly the you know the restrictions on people coming home, the India travel ban, have been incredibly egregious.
0: Yeah, and I think that's really um, that, that's really true. And yet that sense of a security blanket, I guess, is what people kind of hang on to in in such you know really challenging situations with the economy shut down. But I wonder, Greg, with regards to this idea of people that have had the double jab. Um, getting privileges, um, I, I, I think it has been floated in, in New South Wales by the Premier there that maybe that they can start looking at some of those things when they, they reach certain numbers of people that have had the double jab. Are they the kinds of nuances that, that you can see happening um, over the next couple of months?
3: Yeah, look, I think I can. I mean, I probably wouldn't call them privileges, maybe exemptions. Um, and I think what will happen here in New South Wales is that None of this is going to happen for the next sort of you know, several weeks. We have to get the current sort of delta wave under control. So thinking about you know, easing restrictions based on vaccination status won't work when you've got you know, 400 cases a day. I think once we do sort of get on top of things and we're heading downwards and there's a, a bit more of a sort of uh, understanding of what the goals are in terms of control of the current outbreak, I think they will start to um, allow exemptions based on vaccination status and there's there will be a sort of push to try and sort of get things moving try and start to sort of transition to a, you know, a somewhat more sort of open society and if you look at risk you know it's not zero but it's you know, it's reduced considerably in someone who's fully vaccinated so I think you know things like the hospitality industry opening up a bit based on having fully vaccinated staff and having you know, fully vaccinated patrons is, is a logical move plus the ones i sort of alluded to before which are really trying to allow you know, family loved ones to, to to connect um and to you know, to not be restricted from from that opportunity um if you know, the people who are fully vaccinated that are visiting if the people in the residential aged care or hospitals are fully vaccinated as well. They're, they're just sort of sensible, sort of what I call sort of low risk scenarios um, that really are very meaningful. Um, and we do need to you know, consider that as we sort of transition to a more sort of open society.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there's been some concerns about uh, vaccine hesitancy as, as a result, I suppose, of some mixed messaging um, around sort of AstraZeneca, for instance. But I mean, one of the fundamental problems for Australia has really been about supply. But do you imagine if there were more of these exemptions in place, even, you know, by a certain date, once we've got sort of a proper handle on on the current outbreak in, in Sydney and, and what's going on in Melbourne, that that might provide, I suppose, even more of an incentive for people to go and get vaccinated if they know that they you know, can, can travel and, and can go and see loved ones in aged care homes and the like?
3: Yeah, look, it's a careful balance. Uh, I think at the moment, particularly in Sydney, there's no issue with the demand side. There's still you know, an issue with the supply side. So while demand is outstripping supply, you, know, you don't really need those incentives to, to to be factored in. But I think as supply sort of improves from September, and we're really expecting you know, larger numbers of uh, fires and Moderna comes on board. So the supply side of things should be sorted out you know, through September and October. And hopefully that's the time when the, uh, the outbreak in Sydney is coming under control. So at that stage, you do want to provide additional incentives to really help drive that continued sort of acceleration of the vaccine uptake. Um, so I think it, it would be helpful, um, as I said, in in probably September and October, particularly.
0: Yeah, and I guess that idea too—that you know, when perhaps incentives are needed to to get any anyone who's wondering about a vaccine and not and not not taking that step, that having the double jab does count for something quite significant, which is your ability to to travel or to visit or whatever it might be. Um, but are there sort of Challenges in identifying who who's um, who's got what vaccine status, Greg.
3: I think internally it's pretty straightforward. I mean, everyone's got their sort of digital um, in a certificate um, once they're fully vaccinated, so that sort of system can be incorporated pretty easily, I imagine, as it has been in many other countries. I think the international sort of vaccine sort of passport uh, clearly needs to be thought through. Are we going to accept uh, all um, uh, vaccines that are just registered here or are we going to accept all sort of WHO sort of approved vaccines etc. So I think you know, clearly there needs to be some discussion around that I imagine it will be broader than just accepting vaccines that are registered with a TGA in australia because uh, we know there's you know several other very effective vaccines uh, that are being used internationally um, but again uh, these are sort of aspects that need to be considered and to be you know, factored in but they're not insurmountable at all and i think uh, this sort of system while we're transitioning over the next sort of year or so, into hopefully a, a globally uh, high vaccine sort of coverage setting uh, will be important because there's sensible sort of public health-based um, you know, considerations in terms of allowing greater freedoms.
1: Yeah, and does that require at all, you know, making vaccines compulsory, you know, for workplaces or particular settings or more just that, you know, you will be able to do these things and, and I suppose work in these places if you, if you have had the vaccine, will that be enough?
3: Yeah, look, I think there's a few places where we need to consider further mandatory vaccination. At the moment, the only settings are uh, aged care residential staff, um, frontline hotel quarantine staff, uh, where there's mandatory vaccination. But it's remarkable as a healthcare worker um, to know that it's not mandatory to be vaccinated. I mean, it's mandatory to have several other vaccines as healthcare worker, but not COVID-19. It, it really is uh, an incredible, in a sense, oversight. Um, now, it's more difficult when you're talking about other sort of workplaces. And I think that, I mean, this will have something to say around the sort of legal aspects of this, I'm sure. Um, but there, there are other sort of settings where you might consider reasonable to introduce vaccination as a mandatory component of getting business sort of moving so you know again coming back to sort of hospitality sort of industry I'm sure if you ask people you know, running restaurants or pubs if they were able to open up if the staff that they were employing were fully vaccinated they'd be putting their hand up you know, very quickly to do that so it's, it's not straightforward I understand that but I think it's something that Absolutely, we should be considering.
0: Yeah, Liz, it'd be great to get that sort of legal, legal, legal look into to that side of things. If you if you have a view, particularly around around rights and, and what, you know, the, your ability to work and this idea of mandatory vaccination potentially being there.
2: I think um, this is something I've kind of followed at a distance a little bit, but um, I think it's actually much easier for private employers to do it than it is to say government and the public service. Um, so the Fair Work Commission has found that um, it's you can say have your require your workers to have the flu jab, particularly if you work in say, child care or, or um, anything where it kind of it, it relates to the work that you're doing and you're working with vulnerable people. So I can see the COVID jab working that it, it's compulsory in those settings. That will be upheld. Um, other settings it will also depend you'll need to have carve-outs for people who can't have it for medical reasons Um, so if you want to follow the work of um, Maria O'Sullivan at, at Monash Law School she's talked a little bit about this about how that may work.
1: Yeah, well, it's, um, it's you know it's such important conversations to be having, and, and I really love that the two of you have, have teamed up and are putting um, you know articles out there across the media landscape to, to help out our thinking and guide our thinking around these really key issues as well. It's been um, so great to have you both as part of the show this morning. Thanks so much.
2: Thanks for having us. A pleasure, Dylan.
1: It's Greg Dorr, infectious disease physician and epidemiologist at Kirby Institute uh, at the University of New South Wales, and also Elizabeth Hicks, who's a PhD candidate at the University of Melbourne's Melbourne Law School. And you can have a look at their recent article in Guardian Australia. And Liz has also co-authored an article for the conversation that takes up some of these issues as well, particularly in relation to the rights of those um, located outside the country who may wish to return.
2: (laughs) Triple R on FM Digital, online and via the app.
1: Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot.
0: In amongst the reporting of the IPCC's latest report on climate change and its dire warnings on the impacts, one of Australia's biggest energy users, the Tamago aluminium smelter near Newcastle, uh, announced by 2030 it intends to be fully renewable. This is a significant turnaround for the company and Renew Economy reported that it could spell the early demise of one of the country's largest coal-fired generators. Giles Parkinson is the editor of Renew Economy. Morning, Giles. I hope yeah, you're going, morning, well. Uh, yeah, yeah. Are going really well. Yeah, yeah, good. Um, now, there's a lot to speak about when it comes to the climate science, but I, I wanted to kind of pull out that piece of news that Renew Economy uh, reported last week because we need a bit of hope, and uh, also, you know, there is this window of of time um, still there that the IPCC report shows that you know we if we get big things done, uh, the story might. Not be written yet. Um, So one of our biggest energy users switching to renewable energy. Um, How significant was that announcement last week by Tomago? It's
4: hugely significant. Um, You know, as you say, the IPCC report came out and it gave a very firm warning. uh, made a few important um, statements that the science was unequivocal, that things are changing now and if we don't act very quickly then we're really going to be in a big pickle and we're all big mess and, and not just in that pickle is really just to sort of, you know, downplay it and minimise it and, um, and that's probably not right either. But look, our best hope, um, particularly in the lack of a, any federal government initiatives and, um, and the dominance of the fossil fuel industry, is that the consumers, and they, they could be household, um, you, me and the listeners out there, or big business, will actually accelerate that change. So I don't think there's any better example than the Tamarga smelter that you just talked about there. So they are just about Australia's biggest single energy user. They've um, long had a supply from the dirty coal power generators in um, in the Hunter Valley, uh, first of all from Liddell, and um, when that closes in a couple of years, sort of most of it will transfer over to Bayswater, which is right next door. Interesting, because the chief executive of Tamarga um, smelter has been a real renewable skeptic. He used to sort of appear on our website and comments and just sort of, you know, say, you know, wind and solar is never going to work. I run a big factory. I need base load. Um, you know, wind and solar will be the ruin of the economy. And yet here he is coming out and saying, well, by the end of the decade, by 2028 at the latest, we expect to write contracts which will basically require um, that, um, well, near as damn it, um, all his, all his um, energy needs comes from renewables. And um, that's just, it was a process for him to sort of go through this and understand that um, you didn't have to have baseload to have power. You didn't have to have coal or gas to have power. You can actually do it with renewables and storage and um, and other things. And, you know, he just would have, in the end, he would have just looked at the contracts that he had available to sign, the contracts that he would have been able to sign in a few years' time, and just the inescapable conclusion is that wind and solar, not only is it cheaper, but it's, sorry, it's cleaner, it's cheaper, it's significant significantly cheaper then continuing on with fossil fuels, and it's better for the environment and ultimately better for the economy. So really landmark agreement there.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting insight, because I think a lot of people are, are thinking about what the latest IPCC report might mean for, for governments, kind of changing their tune, whether it will lead to a, a fundamental shift in Australia, given the, the sort of paralysis on, on this issue for such a long time. Do you imagine that with you know the momentum from the IPCC, and, and I suppose most importantly, these um, that the reduction in cost of renewables and, and, and that sort of thing will lead to more coal leaving the grid early and these types of decisions made that will, in some ways, sort of really kind of speed up our move towards our net zero?
4: Well, look, you really hope so. Um, in Australia, I think the IPCC report is going to have a really important impact, but I think it's probably going to have more important impact internationally because international governments are more prepared to accept the science. We've already heard the Australian government representatives just sort of, you know, try and pick holes in it and knock it and dispute it and just basically try to ignore it. But the fact that the international community is um, embracing it and acting towards it, the fact that the big suppliers, the big, sorry, consumers, like Tomago, they're the ones that ultimately will shift the debate. Because when you get people like Barnaby Joyce and Matt Canavan saying, oh, that wind and solar is going to, you know, you can't, um, you know, we're all going to be living in caves and stuff like that, and yet you've got the Biggest energy consumer in the country, saying, no, we're going wind and solar because it makes sense, it's cheap, it's clean, and it's reliable, then that ultimately is going to shift the conversation. Um, with the current government that we've got now, because so many of them are kind of locked so deeply into the fossil fuel industry and we've got you know, the Murdoch media, which just makes no attempt to report faithfully and accurately you know, the either of science or even the progress towards renewables, then you've got a major problem, you've got this major impasse. But, you know, hopefully, you, you would like them to come on board and to actually accelerate and facilitate it and just say, okay, guys, here's a target. Let's try and do it, rather than be sort of, you know, know, part of your joy saying, I'm not going to go on a picnic until you can tell me exactly what I'm going to eat at what point, at what time, and, um, you know, what's in the sandwich, Um, you know. He should be um, staying
0: home anyway. Lockdown in New well, he South Wales. Be
4: home, but unfortunately, someone like a camera on his property, so it keeps on popping up.
0: So, yeah. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I, as you know, I'm, a, I'm one of your readers at Renew Economy, and you were reporting last week as well that AGL, the country's largest emitter, um, has been caught on the hop a bit by the rapid energy market changes. Do you think? that change can come in this way with sort of regulators and company action um, rather than government authorities having to to step in um giles or i mean I'm, look, I'm not saying that the government shouldn't take action but i'm just saying yeah. are we gonna we're gonna see this kind of spurts of of, of progress uh anyway
4: Oh yeah, absolutely. You just have to look over the last eight years. I mean that's how long this government's been in power. And in that time, you know, they've gotten rid of the carbon price, they tried to get rid of the renewable energy target, they tried to get rid of every single institution or defenestrate them like Arena and the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and the Climate Change Authority. And yet, despite all of that, you know, Things moved on. Um, We've actually had a big switch to renewables. We probably could have done it even more and even faster and probably more efficiently and more cheaply. But we have actually managed to... make that switch. Now, one of the problems is at the moment we've got a couple of major blockages. We have not, despite all the warnings and and the planning that went beforehand, built enough transmission. So at the moment, we find it difficult to build much more winds and solar in many parts of the country. We have not adapted the market rules to keep up with the new technologies and we're now going through this laborious process of trying to redefine the market rules. And unfortunately some of the incumbents and the energy minister are right in there they've got their fingers all over trying to sort of design the part, design the future to look exactly like the past where we really need it to sort of adapt to all the different new technologies. But that's really frustrating. They're not going to stop it, but they're going to make it slower than it needs to be, they're going to make it more complicated than it needs to be, and they're going to make it more expensive than it needs to is be. Is that what's sort of what behind
0: IP... this sort of, I mean, people that have solar on their rooftops in particular or might be looking at it, is that kind of what's behind those solar export oh, changes exactly. that we heard about that- as well?
4: Yeah, that's, that's, just, that's just actually a classic example of just the rules getting in the way of the market. And so, um, and, and try to redesign the rules to sort of encourage the networks to do what they should have done 10 years ago, basically make their networks ready to accommodate with top solar. Yes, they have to have make some adjustments. Yes, they do have to make some investments to sort of handle the two-way flow, but it's actually not that expensive. They should have done it, but they just didn't want to until they can extract some more money out of people. Um, and so... You know, they basically sort of, you know, used a big hammer to try and crack open a nut to make things even more complex in trying to solve a problem that actually had a technology solution. It just didn't have the will of the networks and the incumbents to do it in the most efficient way. So that's part of the problem. You know, it's really, it's. It's really difficult when you get trying you get economists and lawyers trying to solve sort of the engineering problems and it's really hard when you get ideologues trying to solve policy problems. Um, so all these clashes. But look, the good news is um, we do have the technologies and there's been a couple of really interesting reports coming out in the last couple of weeks just reinforcing the fact that you know if we want to get to zero emissions really quickly, even by 2035, we actually have the technologies here to do it now. We've just got to deploy them. We've just got to facilitate that. And the other report's just sort of saying that you know, we do have to do this quickly. The IPCC report is really quite clear. We have to move now because we've only got this limited budget. You know, There's only a certain amount of co2 two and greenhouse gas emissions we can put in the atmosphere before we get past these tipping points. And so we've got to keep to those budgets. And like everyone knows with a household budget, if you spend it all up front then you haven't got much this you haven't got much later on and we should be you know we should be economizing on that budget as soon as we can.
1: Giles Parkinson is our guest editor of Renew Economy, talking um, kind of about the the latest IPCC report, but also about some some positive news stories, I suppose, in in what's happening with energy transition in Australia. And I suppose in that context, Giles, and also that you know we have some, some additional um, reports from the IPCC coming, IPCC coming as part of this kind of sixth instalment. And given as well that that the states have have you know moved towards net zero and, and that kind of thing, do you imagine that the the culture wars around climate policy will persist, given we'll have more international news, more, more news about progress happening on the international front, and the states doing sort of more of the heavy lifting in that regard in Australia. Will, will the tenor of debates sort of change at all among politicians and across um, some sections of the media?
5: Look, you
4: can only hope so, but I just don't have much faith that it will. We are so dominated in Australia by mobile media; they account for seventy percent of the readership in Australia, and they've got you know they. Um, and on social media, it's just extraordinary. Just some of the things that you hear from people that read something, and you just going, "That's just so much misinformation." There's just so much, you know, bad faith. I and mean, I guess we've seen it to a certain extent in the with the COVID crisis as well. Um, um, yeah, look, I'd really like to think that the debate would change. I hope that it does change a little bit. Um, I fear that it'll probably take another catastrophe, like last summer's bushfires, to actually get that debate to sort of change. Because, you know, for many people, I mean, there's COVID to worry about. There's lots of other issues on the table. Mm. For many people, unless it's actually sort of brought face to face with them, they kind of look the other way or not worry too much about it. I mean, many people are very, very concerned, but... To kind of change the debate, I think. you know, um, Yeah, I, I just get so frustrated in Australia simply because um, of the dominance of people basically acting in bad faith.
0: Do you think I'm um, talking about that? And um, um, I mean, do you think that the if, if Barnaby Joyce now, you know, deputy PM, leader of the Nationals, if someone can work out what price net zero for Barnaby, do you think that he? might shift and when I say that I don't mean personally to him but just for he for those that he represents if there is a way to secure support for that policy position at the federal level um, would that change the game do you think Giles?
4: Well absolutely I mean these are people who believe who believe in nothing but the amount of money coming into their coffers so um, the There has been some sort of political observation analysis done saying there has been a slight change in what Barnaby's saying. He's no longer necessarily just attacking the science. What he's trying to do is actually just extract a price for his agreements and maybe that is the strategy now, and that's what some people are suggesting is the case. So, um, yeah, it's just that, um, you know, I mean, I heard Barnaby Joyce being interviewed um, on Radio National last week, and it's pretty hard to make out what he's saying at all. It's just completely incoherent. Um, you're asking a question, it just gives you this sort of scrabble of, of answers. But, you know, um, some people are just thinking that, that is the strategy now, so the farmers or the, 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 um, the National Party... Um, which is not really a farmer's party anymore. It's more of a miner's party. Um, is also holding out for, for about as much money as they can get, which I guess has been the history of this whole sort of climate policy debate over the last 20 years.
0: Yeah, and I guess it's, um, you know, the idea that there could be a way to get some sort of resolution and, and, a, and a plan uh, and approach for the future. Um, you know, we, we hold optimism for that but yeah, the the messiness and of politics maybe ain't so pretty to watch. Um, but thanks, Giles. It's been great speaking with you and uh, I think surf's up in your lockdown area so Go and enjoy.
4: I will. And some whales jumping as well. Oh, <laughs> wow! <what? laughs>
0: Whoa. Oh, yeah, Very we'll ambience. take care up there in New South Wales. Okay, thank you. Catch See you soon, you. <laughs> And, yes, coastal lockdowns, how nice is that? Look, there's some good lockdowns
1: and there's some more difficult ones, but that sounds pretty good for Giles up there in New South Wales.
5: Triple Ah uh.
0: Over the past couple of weeks, Dylan, you've asked a few of our media interested guests on this show about Sky News expanding its reach into regional Australia and the YouTube ban on their account because of COVID misinformation. And um, while we've had some pretty interesting comments, I reckon um, we've actually now found someone who has sat down and watched Sky News for a couple of weeks and has an informed view on how likely it is that it will command influence uh, into regional Australia. That's Margaret Simons. She's a freelance journalist and author and academic and uh, Margaret thanks for being with us and some might think that you've taken it for the team to to sit down and study Sky News but uh, I appreciate that you've done it Um, what prompted you to take on a Sky Sky News diet?
5: Well I guess there's a general feeling about News Corporation which of course is very dominant in our media sphere but I think very often people actually lend it more power by taking it at its own estimation Um, And in order to um, have a healthier media sphere, I think we actually need to understand the nature of its power and how it works. And this seems to me to be particularly the case with Sky News. There's a narrative that it's taking Australia by storm, that it's dominant. Its own um, figures suggest that nine million Australians access it every month. That seemed to me to be extremely unlikely and also contradicted other independent research that's been done by the University of Canberra that I was aware of. So I thought I'd watch it for a while, see what was being put to air, um, both on television and on social media, and also dig in and try and actually unpick where these figures and these impressions are coming from.
1: And so what did you, what, what, I suppose, what were, you, what were your impressions from sitting down and, and watching Sky News for an extended period, Margaret?
5: Well, of course, some of the content is outrageous, and I guess we're all familiar with that because it makes the headlines, but mostly it's really, really boring television, I have to say. <laughs> I mean, um, during the daytime, it's a fairly conventional twenty-four-hour news service, screening the COVID press conferences, for example, and bits of Parliament, and, you know, for the most part, that's pretty unremarkable. Um, The stuff that gets the controversy going, of course, is um, after dark when there's a string of, I call them, News Corporation mascots who, um, in half-hour segments, speak directly to the camera, um, parading fairly predictable views, interviewing each other very largely, (laughs) drawing on a wider stable of News Corporation journalists and occasionally bringing in an outside expert who agrees with their point of view for a bit of mutual boosterism and honestly it's really, really tedious most of the time.
0: Yeah, and we had uh, the the news, whatever it was, a couple of weeks ago that uh, Scott, uh, Sky News' YouTube account was suspended due to COVID misinformation and I guess as you were saying, Margaret, you know, the Seems like there might be self perpetuation. Sky says it has influence. People repeat that, and so they have influence. But the idea that it could become the new sort of Fox News or the Australian version of it, influencing opinions at a at a really large scale. I mean, what's what? What did you come to any sort of conclusions around that sort of concern?
5: I don't mean to suggest it's unimportant, but I don't think it's time to panic yet. There really is no evidence that it's you know anything approaching the sort of reach or influence that Fox News has reached in the USA. And there's a number of reasons why I think it probably won't as well. Um, One of the most important ones, I think, is the existence of the ABC, which, of course, there's no comparison to in the USA. And the University of Canberra research, which I referred to earlier, certainly suggests that the ABC is, by a country mile, the strongest Australian news media brand and the most trusted. Whereas Sky News and the University of Canberra's research, you know, is not widely trusted, widely distrusted, and, you know, well down the rankings in terms of audience reach. So these figures, which I even saw Kevin Rudd giving some airplay to recently, that nine million Australians tune in every month, they're pretty bodgy, really. It's research that's been funded by Sky News. And it's not at all clear how they put those figures together. They say they've done a survey of 7,000 Australians. Well, first up, it's an online survey. And secondly, they seem to have measured every single interaction. Now, you know, I, having interacted with Sky News, I'm getting constant notifications on my mobile phone of you know, clickbait headlines. I don't click on them, but I suspect I'm still being counted. Well, that's like, yeah. that
0: made me laugh in your article, actually, An in Inside Story, that um, that you, you're thinking, they're counting me now <laughs> forever. Yeah,
5: I think, I think that's right. And so, you know, this 9 million figure should not be accepted. The other, the other thing that's got around, Business Insider published an article late last year claiming enormous figures for its reach on YouTube Um, and those were derived from using a sort of automated um, engine that you can uh, call um, social blade, I think it's called. Well, I went and did my own analysis. I just couldn't get the same figures, nothing Mm. like the same. Um, Now, maybe it's my incompetence, others are welcome to try, but, um, you know, that that article has been very widely quoted as suggesting that Sky News is more powerful on YouTube than the ABC. Well, again, it doesn't stack up. And if you go to the Sky News Australia YouTube channel, um, it's easy enough to see what their most popular videos are. And they do have millions and millions of viewers. But it's very clear that most of them are Australia. They're basically providing a stream of content for the American market. And the ones that rate well are about Trump and about Biden and to some extent about conspiracy theories and the Chinese and COVID. Um, Australian ones rank, you know, tens of
1: thousands of viewers at most. Well, I'm, I'm willing to back in your research chops, Margaret. I'm really thankful that you've had a sort of a, a close look at this. Just sort of very quickly, I know you've got to go, but um, but Kevin Rudd um, has uh, sort of suggested there's um, a really need for potentially a, a new regulator, given that sort of ACMA hasn't, um, uh, in his view, I suppose, been as successful as in, um, in regulating some of the, the kind of COVID-19 misinformation and some of those those claims made by sky news after dark and the like we've seen youtube um implement a you know a week-long ban for those very reasons and other digital platforms have done sort of similar things for um when public figures have um sort of spoken out of turn is there a real problem do you think with media regulation in australia that i suppose might become you know more of an issue into the future with sky news regional um you know being watched by potentially more people
5: Yes, there is a problem, but it's not a new problem. It's Mm. been there for a very long while. Um, ACMA, the Australian Communications and Media Authority, is a weak regulator. It operates a system of co-regulation with media companies, and that's for good reasons. Obviously, you don't want government over-regulating media for freedom of speech reasons. Um, But it's also a branch of administrative law, which means, frankly, lots of um, bureaucracy, lots of legal tangles. And it's not at all clear how you do the job better without creating legitimate concerns about government limiting freedom of speech. Um, so, you know, it's all very well to call for it to be abolished and replaced, but what with? How would you do it better? I do think, you know, this is a part of a broader issue, which is the fact that we haven't had good media policy in this country for many decades. Many decades, both sides of politics have squibbed actually thinking about what a good fit for the media regulation across the board, you know, broadcasting spectrum, defamation, the whole works. You know, what would that look like? How do you bring social media into that? Um, Neither side of politics has come up with um, an approach to media policy and um, ACMA is one part of that.
0: Well, we'll let you go, Margaret, but I I like this call to action that you've left us with rather than just leaving us with hand-wringing. So appreciate that and appreciate your um, article and we'll catch you again soon. Pleasure. Uh, bye, uh, Margaret Simons, freelance journal, uh, author, and uh, journalism academic. And she, if you want to read more about it, has written for Inside Story. It's called "Is Sky News Taking Australia by Storm?" Quick answer: uh, No, no,
1: not yet. At least, <laughs> um,
0: yeah, not not a worrisome storm if it is one.
1: Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday.
0: Hope you enjoyed the show and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the R website.